This morning, we're continuing our teaching series in the book of Jonah. If your Bibles, please turn there. We'll be in chapter 2 today. The series is titled Extravagant Love. It's God's shocking pursuit of rebels. So God's love is extravagant. He gives, he lavishes, he is generous. He does not hold back his goodness or his grace from us. And the truth is, if we're honest, we're all rebels. Every one of us can be rebellious. We can all rebel against our loving God and against his word that he's revealed for his glory and for our own good, and yet we can impose ourselves. And we can kind of get frustrated at times when we have an opinion and God doesn't agree. Instead, we should probably change our opinion to match up with his. And so as we consider these thoughts and as we look at the theme of the book, because it's very important, whenever you're doing a book study like we are in this book right now, well, what is the overall theme that God is communicating through this book? Well, one way to describe it is this. It's on the screen. Is the book of Jonah's theme is that God relentlessly loves rebellious sinners. So he loves us sinners, and he caused his people, he caused us, to share his incredible mercy with the world. And so God loves us, even though we run away from him. He pursues us, he loves us, for a purpose for a mission, for us to then go and share that mercy with others, with the world. And being in Abu Dhabi, it's easy to do because God has brought the nations to our front door. And so as we pick up with Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and into chapter 2, I want to give you a brief review of the first 16 verses in chapter 1. Jonah was a prophet in the 8th century B.C., living in Israel, he was called by God to go and to preach to the people of Nineveh who were evil, who were enemies of Israel. And Jonah said, no, I don't like that idea. So he went opposite direction and got on a boat. And God, because of his mercy, pursued the rebel Jonah. He sent a storm and he got Jonah off the boat and into the sea. And that's where we left off last week. So let's read verse 17 and chapter 2 together. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows pass over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars close upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord in my prayer, came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay, Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, 
and then vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, this is a very well-known story, as we talked about, taught many times in kids' church. And yet, what amazes me is sometimes we don't stop to actually think about what this is actually saying. I mean, verse 17 is really hard to believe. I mean, just read verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Really? I mean, that sounds really hard to believe. And then it gets even better. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And he didn't die. I mean, a rational mind in our modern world, if you heard of someone, I mean, outside of the Bible, if you just heard in the news, yeah, a man got swallowed up by a fish, and then he got spit out and he survived, you would probably think, no, that, that can't happen. People can't survive being in, in the stomach of an animal. That's just not possible. And so there have been many people that have tried to rationalize this because, again, they use their human reason when they approach God's word, and they say, well, this is clearly a good moral story, and so we should probably see this as an allegory or as a parable that teaches great truth, but it's not actual, it's not historical, and so we shouldn't take this literally. I read one commentary, it says, this is crazy, but this is what we do to try to rationalize this. It says that Jonah survived, that he swam back to land, all right, that he made it on his own, and he entered into an inn that was called the fish. And so people in their attempts to try to make sense and use human reason, and they're trying to do it in the face of God's revelation, what happens is you take what God has revealed, and you now have taken away its meaning. Because if this is not true or historical or accurate, then the book of Jonah doesn't makes sense. It falls apart if it's an allegory. Because Jesus himself spoke about Jonah and the Ninevites. If you turn to Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 and 41. Matthew 12, 40 and 41. Jesus himself spoke about Jonah and the Ninevites. And here's what Jesus said. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgments with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Does Jesus think that Jonah was an allegory? No. Jesus doesn't say it was a parable. He, Jesus is speaking about Jonah literally in the belly of a fish and the Ninevites, real, actual, historical people. And so we have to receive this by faith that even though it might sound crazy to us, it's real. It happened. A real person named Jonah really was in the ocean, really was swallowed up by a fish, and really did not die. He survived. Now, this might be impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible. This is supernatural. This is a miracle. God appointed, superseding what's natural, and so God did it, and so we believe it. And it applies to you and me today. And so we receive God's revelation, even if it goes against our reason, we submit ourselves to revelation. Now, lest we talk about this too long, this story is not about physical survival. The story doesn't even go into any details. 
about what it was like in the belly of the fish. It doesn't sensationalize the experience. It just says it. It's kind of weird. It's like it's a natural thing. Like it talks about it like it's such a normal thing. Yes, you got on the ocean, got swallowed by a fish. Like it's just no big deal. And the reason is that this is not talking about physical survival. The story is about spiritual revival. This story is about Jonah and God and God pursuing rebels. That is what is being taught through this absolutely miraculous event. So let me give you the main idea of this text that we just read. The main idea, so the primary truth that governs our thinking here is that God lovingly pursues rebels and he seeks to restore the broken relationship. And so the assumption here is that when we rebel, it breaks relationship. But God, out of his love, he pursues rebels. And then he seeks to restore that broken relationship. And that's what you see right here in Jonah chapter 2. Every time that we rebel against God and his word, what we're doing is we're basically claiming and saying, God, I have more wisdom than you do. I know better how to make me happy. I know better how to figure out life. And so whenever we sin, we're saying that we have more authority and more wisdom than God has. So we're rebelling against his good rule in our lives. And so this rebellion breaks relationship because that's what, that's what sin does. If you've ever been married for more than, I don't know, a week and got past a honeymoon, which is all of you that are married here, didn't get married this week, then you know that when you sin against your spouse, when you offend your spouse, it breaks a relationship. This is true with your kids. When your kids sin against you, it breaks a relationship. What you need is reconciliation, which is what God is doing through Jesus, which is what Jonah points to, reconciling the relationship between God and people. And we see that right here with Jonah. That God is pursuing, extravagantly giving and lavishing his love to go after his son who's running away from him. And so what he's trying to do here is restore the broken relationship. Now, the word restore, let's define that. I know not all of us are native English speakers, and so let's define the word restore. The word restore means to bring back or to reestablish what was in a previous condition, place, or position. So to bring back, to bring back together, to, to restore a position or a person or a place. And so God is trying to restore, to reestablish the relationship that he had, bro- that Jonah had broken with him. So we're talking this morning about God's restoring love. And so how God's love is restoring us to be right with him. And so let me give you one key question that comes to the main idea that will govern our entire talk this morning. So this key question from the main idea is this. How does God do that? How does God pursue rebels? So if we're saying that the main idea from this text is that God lovingly pursues rebels to restore the relationship, the question is, well, then how does he do that? What, what does this text reveal to us about how God pursues you and me when we run away from him when our heart drifts from him and God pursues you because he wants your heart, he wants you to be happy, and he knows the only way to be close to him, he pursues you. How? How does he do that? How does he pursue rebels? Let's read and see and learn 
together. Chapter 2, verse 1, let's read it again. It's very important. So now Jonah is in the belly of a fish, for real. And then it says, then, I love that, then Jonah prayed. Ah, interesting, right? He didn't pray before. He didn't pray on the boat. He was asleep, lethargic, checked out, lost touch of reality. He wasn't praying on the boat. Now that he's in a bad situation, now that he's in a very terrifying situation, things aren't going well for him, what does he do? He turns to God in prayer. Then he prayed to Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Like people do when they're desperate. We're no different. A lot of times we don't tend to pray. We don't tend to turn to God until things get bad, until things get desperate. And you see that with Jonah. Belly of the fish, he turns to prayer. Now, what you have to understand is it might seem like God was being really hard on Jonah by putting him in that fish. But that fish actually was protecting him. It was God's means to save Jonah, protecting him from being in the depths of the ocean, so physically, but more importantly, this fish was like a hospital for Jonah's soul. So God was working on his soul while he was in the fish. This was God's goodness. God was blessing Jonah by allowing him to be in this fish. And the prayer from chapter 2, verse 2 through verse 9. So the book of chapter 2 is what Jonah said, what he prayed to God. And so let's look at this prayer, because as we look at this prayer, it answers the key question. So how does God pursue rebels? It's on your screen, the answer. So I want, if taking notes, if you can answer this question that we'll look at in this, in this prayer. And so the answer to this question is that God uses painful circumstances to show us our need for him. So this is important. That God uses painful circumstances to show us our need for him while promising to restore the broken relationship that we created. So there's two parts to this. If you catch that, there's part one and part two, A and B. And so how does God pursue rebels? One, the first part is he shows us our need for him because we can forget. We can get so busy and so caught up with life that we forget that we need him. So God uses painful circumstances to remind us, to show us our desperate need for him. But then he doesn't just show us the need. The second part here is that he makes promises. He promises to restore what we break. He is good to us. He doesn't pursue rebels to punish them. He pursues rebels to restore them to him, to bring them back that they can experience the joy of being close to him. And these two parts go back and forth, back and forth throughout the prayer. And so this whole prayer, you see the first part, Jonah recognizing his need, and then God making a promise to him. Jonah sees his need, God makes a promise. Back and forth in this beautiful poem is what you see in this prayer. And so what we see is ourselves in Jonah. We see our pain and God's promise oscillating through all of life. Verse 2 is where this begins. So you see, first of all, you see his pain. He says, I called out to Lord God out of my distress. He's distressed. He's in the belly of a fish. I'd be really distressed. And so he's crying out in this 
pain. This is not comfortable. And then God promises. He says he hears our prayers. What's amazing is he says, from the belly of Sheol. This is pain. Because you know what that is, Sheol? That was the Old Testament understanding of hell. This is a place that people went after they died and they were not going to go be with God in paradise. That's, that, that's where they went. This is not a good place. He's saying, I feel like I'm going to hell. I mean, can you imagine the position that Jonah is feeling in with the language that he's using? So he's expressing his pain. He's now seeing his need for God because of where he is. And then God makes a promise. He says that he heard his prayer. God hears our prayers. When you cry out to him, he hears you. He's not deaf or mute. He hears and he responds to you. And he has a plan in your pain. Absolutely. He's using it for your blessing and for his glory. He hears you. But you see it again in verses 3 and 4. You see more pain and then promise. It says, for you cast me into the deep. He says, the flood surrounds me. And your waves are passing over me. And then he says, I'm driven away from your sight. He feels like God has pushed him away, but the reality is God didn't push him away. He ran away. But he knows that he's far from God. And he is now in the situation, he's feeling it. He is beginning to recognize his need for God. Because early on, he was running away from God's presence. Remember that? Chapter 1? He didn't want to be in God's presence. He tried to flee God's presence. Now, he's recognizing, oh, what have I done? What have I created? My rebellion has put me in a position where I'm not far from God, and I'm in this terrible situation. He's recognizing his need for God's presence. But then God promises. What does he promise him? He promises his presence. He says, I will look up to his holy temple. So he's promising here that he will once again be able to experience God's presence in his temple. In the middle of this pain, God is reassuring him that he is still with him. In the middle of that situation, Jonah is coming to have a better understanding of who God is. Even though he's the one that ran away, God still loves him and is pursuing him. You see it again in verses 5 and 6, the same pattern. In verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. Talking about seaweed wrapping his head. I mean, of course there's seaweed, probably. I mean, he's in the ocean, and then he's in the fish. So he's, this is a bad situation. And then what he says, it's amazing. He says that he's going on down to the land whose bars close on me forever. He's talking about Sheol again. Because understanding and, and the context and the culture there was that you went down into Sheol and there were bars like a prison and you couldn't get out. So he's talking about He's like, I'm, I, I've so offended God, I'm going to go to hell. I'm so far from him. That's what, he's, that's what he's, his soul is in such anguish, and he's feeling so far from God. Bars closing in on me. And yet, there's this beautiful reassurance of seeing God in his temple. He says that he's gone down very far. See that in verse 5 and 6. It says he's gone down to the roots of the mountain. So he's gone down to the bottom of underwater mountains. So you can imagine how far deep he's gone to be at the bottom of a mountain that's the bottom of the ocean. So it's just showing how there's been this descent. So how Jonah began, and he went down to Joppa. So he went down to board a ship. Then he went down into the bottom of the ship, right? And then he went down into the ocean, and now he's 
down at the bottom of the ocean. It's like he keeps having this descent where his rebellion is taking him further down and further away from God's presence. And yet, there's this promise. There's these promises again where you see here in verse 6 that you've brought up Jonas from the pit. So he knows that his life is is being brought up. He has assurances. God's promising. I know you've ran far away from me. I know you're in a pit. I know it looks terrible right now, but I have a plan to restore you and to bring your life up from the pit. So you see the pain, and then you have the promise repeatedly. You see it in verse 7 as well. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So his life was fainting away, maybe physically, going in out of consciousness, I'm sure, being in the belly of the fish. But I'm sure it was more than physically fainting. I'm sure he's referring to this spiritually. Felt like he was slipping away, like he was fainting. And I remember the Lord. He recognized his need in the situation, and my prayer came to you. So God, once again, is hearing his prayer. God is not forsaking him. This changes everything. When we know that we have God's promises and he loves us, even when we find ourselves in that pit, when we know that we're the ones that created the problem in the first place with our rebellion, and yet God is so willing to say, hey, will you come back? I'm here with you. I want you. I want your heart. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This was actually might not seem like it to you, but for me, this is kind of a hard text this week. It was, it was very challenging for me. I had to really grapple with this. And, and you know why this is so hard for me? Because I get confused too. And my life isn't always perfect. And things sometimes don't go so well for me. It, you, you might think, oh, everything goes perfect for Pastor Matthew. No, not true. I have challenges and I have difficulties. And again, I can also have confusion. And in moments of pain or frustration, you know what I want? Let me be honest with you. Whenever things aren't going the way I think they should, you know what I want? I want a formula. I want to say, okay, if I just do this and then this, then it equals pain is gone. So I think, okay, if I can just pray enough and do enough good, then somehow then God's going to owe it to me because I've done enough good things. I prayed and, and I'm, I'm doing all of the good things. I'm working hard. It's so because I've done these things now, God is going to miraculously make all of the stuff that I might not like in my life just disappear. And then I read Jonah. And I think, oh, well, look at this. Look, look, look. He made a mess. He was in a bad situation. What did he do? He prayed. He was honest with God. And then what happened? Oh, the fish spit him out. I'm to dry land. That's it. Problem gone. Pain disappeared. And so it's so easy to think, oh, 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 if I just do that, if I can just be like Jonah and be desperate enough and, and have the right prayer, then God will automatically change my situation. And the reality is that this week I had to come to grips with, no, Jonah had no guarantees he was getting out of the belly of the fish. He knew in eternity he would be in God's presence again. He knew that God loved him. He was being restored even belly of the fish. And yet, there were no guarantees until that fish spit him out. You see, there is no formula. 
there is no formula that says as long as you do enough good, then somehow that's going to guarantee that your situation is going to change and be less uncomfortable. God is at work in redemptive history that includes your life, and he's using it for his glory and for your good, but it might not look the way you or I think. And sometimes you're going through something difficult, and maybe it is your rebellion. And like Jonah, we should pray and acknowledge our need for him, and God will take you back. But others of you are going through a hard time, and you can say with a clear conscience, I'm not in rebellion. Maybe here today you're going through something pretty hard, and, and you know it's not for disobedience that you're going through this difficulty. And yet you are praying, and you are being faithful, and yet that situation is so hard. And you're waiting to be spit out, but the reality is in your situation, maybe. It's just that God is testing you. Maybe he has someone that will come to faith in Christ through your pain. Maybe he's just conforming you to the image of Christ through that pain. I don't pretend to know why he's allowing it. I, I don't know. But I do trust that God is good, and I know that he loves you, and he is going to use your pain for his glory and for your good. Even if your pain doesn't end until you're in heaven. And even if that's the case, what is life here compared to eternity with Christ? And so there are no guarantees, as there were none with Jonah. But if you are in a position where you are being rebellious, let me tell you, God is going to leave you in the belly of your fish as long as it takes for God to get what he wants. And you know what God wants from you? More prayer. No. Get more money. No. No. You know what God wants from you? Your heart. He wants your heart. He wants your affections. He wants you to love him, to enjoy him. He made you for his own pleasures. And so God will leave you in that belly of the fish for you, whatever that looks like in your life, as long as it takes for God to get your heart. And I'm going to give you one example from my life. I could give you lots of examples, but I don't want to bore you with my life story. But I'll give you one personal example that for me, this really struck home this week, and I'll tell you why. A lot of you already know this. I, I, I've shared in the past how my wife and I, Bonnie, have wanted to adopt for the last 10 years. When she was pregnant with Joshua, who's now 10 years old, we've had this desire to adopt. And again, I've shared in the past, but it's been a very long, difficult journey with a lot of failed adoptions. Uh, the, the worst point for us in pain came on October 20th of 2010, when after nearly a year of having a foster baby in our home, uh, the state chose to relocate her to another foster home. And talk about being crushed wanting to adopt this little girl, not being able to. And I felt like I was in the pit at the time. And I did not understand why God would close that door. But what God did through that pain is that he allowed me to see my own sin. I was exposed for the sinner that I am. I was able to see my pride and my entitlement. And how I was not a good husband. I wasn't. I had a lot to learn. And God used this pain put us in counseling, but he used it to really help us experience God's presence in a whole new way. But after that pain, I did not want to even touch or think about adoption at all until last August when we felt that God was once again moving us to walk in faith and pursue this calling of adoption, and we began the process in August. 
and again, not recount the whole story, but it's been a difficult process. And there has been times where I thought, there's no guarantees. This is just not going to work out. So many roadblocks. And yet this week has been so overwhelming where I called our facilitator in Ethiopia, and we're matched with two little newborn twin boys. And we're going to go see them in about two weeks, go meet our new children. And we're going to have the privilege of bringing them home, God willing, in the next several months. And there's still a lot that has to be done from the legal standpoint. But the fact that God has done this is not that I deserve it, because I don't. It's just God being good to a rebel like me. And God is good to you. And I don't know how it's going to turn out. I don't know what you're going through, but I can assure you that what God wants most is to make you more like his son. He wants to restore you, and that might mean that what you want, you end up getting. It might mean that you don't get what you want, but you get something better, which is God's grace, which is sufficient. You get God's presence. You have eternity with him. So there are no guarantees, but we do know this. This is a guarantee that God is faithful and that his love is truly overwhelming. And the climax of this prayer is in verses 8 and 9. For those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Very insightful verses. We take a whole sermon there, but we won't. We're almost out of time. But it says that when we pursue idols in verse 8, it says that we forsake God's love, his steadfast, faithful love, that we're, we're rejecting it, that we're forsaking it. We're saying we don't want it. We're saying, God, I don't want your, your love. I want the love of my idol instead. I don't want you, Jesus, to fill me. I want to be filled with my idol instead. I don't want your comfort, Jesus. I want comfort from my idol. I don't want security in you, Jesus. I want security from my idol. I don't want meaning from you. I want it from my idol. And so what we're saying is that we are looking to that instead of to Christ. And so he says that those who regard, those who desire vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. An idol is what you turn to for joy and significance and comfort. What takes the place of God in your life, and we all have them. We all have these deep heart idols, desires in our hearts. And we have to, by faith, root them out and through accountability, Keep them at bay. What about you? What about you? Are you today finding yourself in maybe a dark, uncomfortable, terrifying situation? Maybe you're not in the belly of a fish, of course, not literally. But has God put you in your own great belly of a fish, so to speak? A situation that you would not have chosen for yourself, and yet God has put you there for your own good. How are you responding to that situation? Are you like maybe the sailors, remember from last week, when they were scared by God's intervention in the storm and they cried out to their idols, but their idols couldn't save them? Idols can never save us. 
have maybe we turned to idols instead up to the one true God. What do you desire most? His presence or the presence of our own fleeting pleasures. So God is going to use circumstances for our good, even if they're not pleasant, but we praise God for them. We praise God. And so I can honestly tell you that I praise God for the last 10 years of failed adoptions. I am actually, I can't even say that out loud, but I've come to the point where I'm actually thankful for it. People are saying, you want to have twins? You're already in your mid-30s, starting all over again with two babies. Yes, because God called us to this, and his grace is sufficient. See, the story of Jonah began with a rebel who was running away from God. But what you see here halfway through the story is that this is pointing to Jesus. We read earlier in Matthew, Jesus says that just like Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish, he's going to spend three days also in darkness, but just like Jonah came out alive from the darkness, Jesus came out victoriously alive from the grave, and he has defeated our sin and nailed our guilt and shame to the cross. Everything in Jonah points to the cross of what Jesus has done. And so what we're seeing here is God lovingly pursuing rebels, just like he did ultimately through his son, Jesus. And then verse 10 and the Lord spoke to the fish and then vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Literally, it means like he was nauseous, like the fish got sick, so he threw him up. So God made the sick have a stomachache. It's like Jonah didn't taste very good to him, so he threw him up in God's sovereignty onto dry land because God is restoring his prophet to accomplish the mission of telling others about God in heaven who is glorious. And so God lovingly pursues rebels and seeks to restore broken relationships. And so this is shocking because Jonah does not deserve it. But the truth is we don't either. I don't deserve God's goodness to me. I, you don't deserve it either. I mean, if we're honest, are we less rebellious than Jonah? No, we're just as in our own way rebellious. This points to the reality that God is pursuing, and as we sung a little while ago, Jesus paid it all. That our sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And we praise the one who paid our debt and raised his life up from the dead. Because that's what it means to follow Jesus. It's not about religion. It's about having your soul literally resurrected because of Jesus' work on the cross. He paid the price, and through his spirit, he brings us to life so that we can know God and stop running away from him. One last thought, and we'll close. Did you notice, this is interesting, did you notice something missing from Jonah's prayer? You know what was missing from his prayer? He never repented. Did you catch that? Never once in his prayer did Jonah say, I was wrong. He said he needed God, admitted that, that he had run away, He admitted that he was in the deep and he needed God. Sure, he admitted that. But he never said, I was wrong, God. Please forgive me. No asking for forgiveness. Just asking for help. You know what this shows? God is still good to a rebel that was still kind of a rebel. And we'll see it more as the story progresses. It's about God's compassion. 
This is not about how good we are. It's not about our deserving. It's about his grace. And we see it repeatedly in this story. Will you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for giving us the privilege and the joy of looking at your word and being challenged and yet comforted by it, knowing that we run away and yet you run after us that much harder and you reach for us. And you do so with the plan to restore. And you did it ultimately through your son's work on the cross, paying the price, making a restoration a reconciliation to you possible so that we can experience forgiveness and joy everlasting. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for not being like us where we hold grudges and we don't want to forgive, and yet you are so merciful. We are in awe of your truly extravagant love for us. I pray that we would live in such a way that we reflect it, that we live for you. We pray these things in the name of your Son, and our Savior Jesus. Amen.